Greetings. And our evil podcast host from the right, Joshua Death. Yoeth. Yoeth. Is this what we're going with? That's what we're going with, Yoeth. Oh, man. Word to thy mother. <laughs> yeah. So, this week we have a subject that I think is going to be interesting to a lot of people. In fact, a uh, not just a subject, but a series. This is the first episode in our Analyzing Missions series. Actually, a really important skill to have. It turns out that playing the mission is something that makes you do well at tournaments. But before we get too much into the specifics, I kind of like to throw out to the two of you, like, what does it mean to you when we say playing the mission? Josh? What playing the mission means to me is when you set up on the table and you start rolling dice, it's very easy to get caught up in that momentum of, I want to kill the bad guy. And it's very easy to lose sight of, well, as much as I really want to go kill that unit over there, or I want to go kill that guy over there, that may not be the point of the game. The mission, the objectives may be, I need to go hold this point here, or I need to go kill that unit over there. And you very easily can lose sight of, play the mission. So the number one thing I always tell people is, read the mission, play the mission. That's what you're trying to defeat, not just kill your enemy. The play the mission, as Josh pointed out, is not getting caught up in the killing part, because that is certainly one of the funner parts of 40k, especially for me. I like death on the table. <laughs> but, ha ha ha. I try and stay off the table as much as I can, but it's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's bad for the support in the back and all that. It really, really is. <laughs> Playing the mission is looking ahead. I've got this thing I'm trying to do, which is holding the objectives... And spoiler in ITC, that also does involve killing things, because I have a list of tasks, and I need to be strategically inserting myself towards those. Exactly. Yeah, I think Shaylin actually makes a really good point there, that it isn't necessarily just like, go get that objective. But playing the mission means focusing on what the mission wants you to do, rather than running your list on autopilot. Because that's a very easy mistake to make, is... Like, everyone has those little habits of kind of like, okay, it's my movement phase, which means everything moves, and I make sure to stay within this bubble and do all this sort of thing. But you need to be thinking about what it is you need to do, what those tasks you have are, mm -hmm. rather than just sort of doing the thing you normally do all the time. Well, we talked about when writing a list that you're building solutions. These are the problems you're solving. Yep. And the solution only helps if you actually look at what the problem is. Exactly. And if you try to solve it mid-game. Yes. Very true. Uh, as kind of a follow-up to that, say you're sitting down to a mission for the first time and looking at things. And obviously this is not the first time any of us have played or looked at the ITC Champions <laughs> missions. I think all three of us have a wealth of experience with them. Uh, I know for Shaylin and I, that's mostly all we play these days. ITC is super popular on the West Coast. Yes, it is. I'm not actually sure how popular it is out Josh's way. It's honestly, out here, it's almost 50-50. Oh, really? I've noticed lately there's a large number of events out here on the East Coast that they're doing this, it's almost like a hybrid between the Nova missions and the ITC missions. It's really hmm. kind of odd. What they do is they use the Nova's concept of you select endgame or uh, progressive for your objective scoring, and then it uses all of the ITC secondaries. Interesting. And so it's, I've noticed a lot of events seem to be picking up this kind of format. Really interesting to see how it's been playing out. 
Cool. That's, that's interesting. I haven't heard about that much before. I've seen some tournaments using the Renegade missions and others. Uh, and for those of you who are not familiar with all of these different tournament formats that we're sort of like spieling off as though it were nothing, we will be talking about each of these in their own episodes. So you don't have to worry. This is going to be a episode series that is going to be quite long because there are a lot of different people who have different ideas about their missions. And to our other listeners who are like, oh god, we're going to have to do this whole series, we will be breaking it up with other content. Of course. Yes, this is not going to be all back-to-back. We won't subject you to that. But this time, our subject at hand, as we've already kind of mentioned, is the ITC Champions missions, which about halfway through... A year, it was about a year and a half ago, I think. Yeah. Uh, replaced the older ITC missions. Yeah, the first BAO of 8th edition, they came out with the new set. Yes, uh, I think a lot of people were much happier with these compared to some of the older missions. I certainly am. I think they work a lot better and are less random, which is nice. Most tournament players appreciate fewer chances for the dice to screw them out of a, a good battle. Amen. These were the replacements, taking their inspiration heavily from some of the things that Nova and Renegade had done over on the East Coast, and are kind of the new tournament standard for most people playing in the ITC. Not everyone, but a large chunk of them. Yeah. For those of you who don't know anything about it, the ITC Champions missions are broken up into two big sections, which we're going to kind of use to split the episode here, the primary and secondary missions. The primary mission is one of six different objective-based missions. They're all broadly similar in that they have fixed objective placements, with one tiny little exception. You are scoring points for holding objectives and killing units each turn. They all have random deployments, so unlike some other missions, you do not have fixed deployment attached to each mission type, but rather a possible one of the six standard deployments on each of them. And as we mentioned, that the with the fixed objectives, that can mean that some of them get a little bit weird sometimes. Indeed. The other thing to remember is uh, the, an aspect of ITC is that you don't have to hold yourself to the missions perfectly as a tournament organizer. So we're just talking about ITC as the broad championship missions as how they would play them at the Las Vegas Open. So, the big part of the primary mission, which we'll talk about the individual six missions, they're honestly not that different from each other when you get right down to it, or at least that's my opinion. Um, Perhaps the two of you have found a little bit different, but I find that I play all six missions in a very similar way. My army is actually vastly affected by the number of objectives on the board. So I kind of subdivide the ITC missions in my head to the the lesser objective ones, the mid-objective ones, and the high-objective ones which I play marginally differently. It is worth noting, though, that the ITC objective missions all buy as fairly high. The smallest number of objectives you ever have is three, and there's only one mission with that. I believe there's two fours, a five, and two sixes. Yes. So you're you're looking at very objective-heavy boards. There's going to be a lot of objectives down on the ground for players to claim in almost all of the missions. Uh, but I want to talk about the the primary mission, capital P, capital M, <laughs> here in terms of scoring points first. You can get up to five points per turn. Uh, Josh, you want to go through and enumerate them for us? Do you think you can? Is this a challenge? God, this might be rough. Uh, 
it, there's, there's really hard ones to remember on this one. It's uh, hold an objective. Do you hold a single objective, any objective? Do you hold one? Mm -hmm. uh, did you kill an enemy unit? Mm -hmm. uh, any number of enemy units. Did you kill an enemy unit? If you did, that is a point. Uh, and then, uh, and those are both done by the end of your turn. Correct. Yes. Then there's two that are scored at the end of the battle round. And at the end of the battle round, you ask yourself the question, did I hold more objectives than my opponent? If the answer is yes, then you get another point. And did I kill more units than my opponent killed of mine? Answer is yes, then you get another point. And lastly, there's the bonus point. And all of the different ITC missions will have a, a different circumstance or requirement that you would need to secure that bonus point. Um, and I'll add that they're not normally that easy to get. They're, they're not very easy to secure. But if you can push them early, a lot of times it can give you a nice little point lead that may help. Yeah. Yeah, 100% on that, I think. You, you passed the quiz successfully. Shay, do you have anything you want to add to that sort of broad outline of things? No. Uh, actually, that is a perfectly succinct broad outline. Yeah. Um, I think Josh hit the sort of the main points right there. You, you have five points, but really four points, because as Josh said, just like scoring the bonus point is not something you can do most turns, and you shouldn't expect it. Um, no. So realistically, you have up to four points you can score most turns, you should be scoring at least two points every turn. I think if you don't score two points, that's a bad turn for you. 100% agree. And it can be a very big swing, because if your opponent successfully kills or holds something and you don't, they get two points automatically yep. from doing that, and you have lost a point. Mm -hmm. So that's really bad. Because they have held or killed something, depending on which one you have failed to do, and they have obviously done more because you didn't do anything, and you are down a point for failing to do so. That is a pretty big turnaround right there. Yes. Uh, a, a small note on the bonus point, the way I address it is I read it, and I go, okay, a lot of bonus points are actually scored when you score the hold and kill at the end of player turn, it is yeah. worth reading and refreshing yourself at the beginning of the mission. Yes. And sometimes just reminding yourself to that, because sometimes you'll see an opportunity that's like, oh, I get a free bonus point. Okay. Scoring yeah. more points never hurts you. Yeah, you should always have your eye on the bonus point, but don't expect you're going to get it most turns. Yeah. How that do you guys feel about first turn versus second turn when it comes to scoring all of these? bottom of turn has a distinct advantage because when it comes to holding or killing more, you know how much your opponent has done walking Certainly in. True. So you have more information and you can react to it better. Some, some occasions it's like, well, my opponent is definitely going to have killed more than me this turn. So I'm not going to even try to catch up to them, but it can change your tactics and stuff. You, you have a better reactionary position because you walk into that particular aspect of the mission with more information. True. Josh, do you have anything that you want to add to that? I'm a big fan of building armies that plan for the worst, hope for the best. Um, I like to build armies that are designed to go second. The main reason I like that is because so many people, they design their armies with the intent to go first, and if they don't go first, it kind of puts them on their back foot. And if you design it to go second, it actually is somewhat liberating in the way you play the beginning of the game and gives you a lot more power and control at the end of the game. And the end game is where a lot of those top table games are really won and losses in the last, you know, turn four, five, and six at the end game. 
and having the bottom of the turn gives you a little bit more control over the way those turns are going to flow. And so I prefer to go second in that regard. I think that's a good point. I often play a lot of shooting-heavy lists, which means that going first is often a big advantage. If you get to shoot first, you're probably going to win the shooting war. But like Josh, I build my armies with the understanding of, like, you're going to go second in a lot of your games. Uh, and that's especially true for armies with high drop counts, like Tau, like Orcs, uh, and many of the others that are kind of going to be like, you're going to be on the bottom of the turn quite a bit. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. But I, I, agree. I think Shaylin hits the nail on the head when saying, like, bottom of the turn is generally better for scoring points. Yes, but the first turn does have the advantage of you get to whack your opponent first. Yes. So you can deliver a crippling blow. It also allows you to set the pace of the game. Yes. Um, if you were going first, you were kind of uh, in control of the way things are happening. Your opponent is reacting to you, which for some armies can be very powerful. Yes. Josh actually mentioned something that we hadn't touched on as an important distinction from some of their mission types. Uh, ITC games are always six turns long. Yes. They, there's no random game length. Yes. That can be a little bit disconcerting if you're not used to it. Um, obviously, they can end early if you don't get enough time, but in theory, the game is always exactly six turns. Yes, uh, the, the two exceptions being getting tabled or tabling and running out of time, which you shouldn't be doing. Yes. You should be practicing playing fast, and that's a different episode, but you right. do need all six turns. Those final turns of the game do make a huge difference, because at the beginning of the game, everyone should be holding objective and killing a unit. Maybe you don't kill a unit on turn one. That happens sometimes, especially if both of you have deployed very defensively, or if you're a melee-heavy army. Generally speaking, turns one to three, you should hold a unit and you should kill a unit unless you have royally screwed something up. Oh, yeah. But on turns four, five, and six, when your models are getting kind of thin on the ground... Maybe you've lost thirteen or 1,400 points of your army already, and you're kind of just struggling to stay in the game. That's when those hold a unit, kill a unit every turn start becoming a little more difficult. Yes, and sometimes in those moments you're like, then you have a glorious bonus point opportunity that's keeping you in the game. The bonus point can be big there. That's also where I really look for that three-point swing Shay mentioned earlier, is turns four, five, and six especially, or sometimes turn one is another big one. I think we'll come back around to that in a second. But turn four, five, and six are where you most often realize, well, oh, if I hide this unit and if I cover these two objectives, then my opponent doesn't get a kill point and I probably hold more than them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really, the, the differential is, I think, really the key to understanding the primary mission on ITC, is that it's all about doing more than your opponent and pushing that ability to, I am either going to hold more or kill more or both. A small aside is, uh, as I've noticed, having played a lot of ITC missions, is it forces you to have an end of player turn, an end of battle round pause assessment to rack up and score your points, obviously, mm -hmm. but it also can be used as a great opportunity to sit and go, what pro new problems do I need to solve? Where do I need to get my solutions going? can be a boon to you if you elect to use that time to think ahead. We mentioned already the kind of um, hold more, kill more kind of thing. How does that factor into you guys for building lists? Shailen, you want to go first? 
so when I'm building lists, uh, as I mentioned in the list writing episode, that mobility is really key because you need to be getting places. Obviously. I guess if you can't get to engage, either engage the enemy or sit on objectives, you're not going to be able to hold things very well, and you're not going to be able to necessarily kill things very well. So that is a thing I look at in listability is I've got these obvious problems here of I need to be holding and I need to be killing and I need to be doing both more. So I need a certain amount of firepower, a certain amount of stability because I am going to get countershot. So sometimes like with my units, like I move them onto objectives out of line of sight so I can have them turn four. Yeah. Josh, do you find that midfield control is more important in ITC than it is in other missions or is that not the case for you? In ITC specifically, yes, midfield control is a very powerful thing, uh, mainly because a lot of their objective layouts are preset. Actually, all of their objective layouts, uh, no, most most of them are preset. Uh, and so, and because the, of the, the nature of the presets of those objectives, the center of the table is giving you the highest chance and the best control at being able to not only hold objectives, but hold more objectives and getting that all-important rare bonus point. That's the big one, because most of those bonus points are determined off of holding certain objectives on the table or certain numbers of objectives on the table, and controlling the center of the table gives you the best probability of actually getting those one or two shots where you might be able to grab that bonus point. Do we actually want to go through and talk about the individual missions here? Because I think at least going over them briefly is probably a solid plan. Certainly. I would agree. Let me pull up the mission pack. Yeah. So, as we had mentioned previously, there are six different uh, ITC missions. All of them are objective-based, obviously, uh, and vary between three and six different objectives in all of them. They all have the same secondary objectives, and they all have the same potential points out of primary and secondary, so you're never going to see a big difference there. Yeah, the cap is 42. You cannot score more than 42 points in ITC. Yes. Uh, the best I have personally done is 38. That's how hard it is to score points in ITC. It's really hard to max a, a score. I have heard of people doing it, but never done it myself. So, the first scenario is Seize Ground, which has six objectives deployed into the center of each of the four table quarters, and then in a sort of weird, like, centralized uh, in-between those four other objectives. A little difficult to explain, but it's pretty easy to see once it's actually out on the table. Our show notes are going to include uh, little maps of these and overlays of the deployment zones over the maps. I think that'll be useful, so if you are listening to this on your computer rather than on a portable device or in your car or whatnot, then you might want to take the moment to kind of, like, look over each of these as we talk about them. In Seize Ground, the bonus point is for holding or contesting five or more objectives at the end of their player turn. Uh, And I've had this clarified that contesting specifically means an objective where both players have units on it, but neither player controls it. Do either of you have any specific thoughts on this one? This, This kind of feels like the most basic of the missions to me. It's pretty self-explanatory. The two objectives out at 28 across the long edge, 24 up across the short edge, are the ones that get fought over most because they are geographically closest to each other. And they're smack in the midfield no matter what deployment zone you're playing. 
Yes. You'll typically have two objectives inside your deployment zone, or at least right on the edge of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then two objectives kind of in the midfield-ish area, and then obviously two more in the enemy zone. Uh, notably, Vanguard Strike and Search and Destroy, you basically only get one objective in your zone, and it's a little noticeably more awkward with those matchups. Yeah. Josh, do you have any thoughts on this one? Honestly, it's actually one of my favorites. Uh, it's significantly harder to, to get the bonus point on this one than it was. It's not as easy anymore. It's a lot harder to get out into the tables, but I still think it's it's pretty doable right now. Uh, on that note, infiltrators are very useful in some of the ITC missions with certain deployments. So. Yes. And I think I agree with Josh that this is one of the, the deployments where you're it's much more plausible to get the bonus point than a lot of the others. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, scenario number two is cut to the heart. This is the fewest objectives you will ever see in an ITC mission. There is one objective in the center, and then each you and your opponent will place an objective in your deployment zone that has to be more than six inches from a table edge. The bonus point in this one is you need to hold the center objective and the objective in your opponent's deployment zone. Exactly. This is one where I've seen newbie players make a very common mistake, so I'm going to point it out here. They put their objective in a dumb place. Don't. Make sure you put the objective in a sensible place. You look at the terrain, you look at your deployment zone, mm -hmm. play, probably place it near terrain. It doesn't hurt in this case. Put it someplace that's, that's easy for you to get to and hard for your opponent to get to where relevant. Yes. Josh, do you have any thoughts? tend to lean towards on this one the most is I actually will put the my objective more pushed towards the middle of the table mm -hmm. to try and draw especially if I'm planning an aggressive army rather than like a defensive army to draw my opponent to try and go for it I want them to go for it where if I put it in the back corner way out of the way behind walls and walls of guys yeah. a lot of times your opponent's just going to kind of write it off like alright I'm just going to try and fight for the middle in my own and I like to throw it out there to try and get them to want to go for it. Give them the thought or the hope that, like, you know, I might be able to grab it. Because a lot of times that's the only way I'm going to be able to get them to give me, you know, targets to get those kills. That's true. That's, that's definitely an interesting strategy. The other big takeaway I think I would put out on this mission is that because this is the mission with the fewest number of objectives, it is the most beneficial to very elite and low model count armies like knights, custodies, gray knights, etc. <laughs> As it turns out, those very small, tightly packed elite armies are also usually very good at getting into the enemy's deployment zone mm -hmm. and have the potential to overwhelm whatever forces they have put on their objective. I have gotten the bonus point more times in that mission alone than any other mission in the whole set. Yep. And oh yeah. Combined. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is where your army can affect the bonus points a lot. I don't think I've ever gotten the bonus point on that mission. So, scenario 3 is Nexus Control. It is four objectives placed in a diamond formation uh, around the table. This uh, is just, one of the two diamond formation ones. This is the one without the centerpiece. Yes. In this mission, holding all four objectives is what you need to get the bonus point. That's so hard to do. It's really, really difficult. I won't say I've never seen it happen, but it just doesn't happen much unless you're just completely blowing your opponent away. This is another fairly basic mission. You just kind of have objectives spread around the table, kind of differentiating it from some of the other missions. None of the objectives are very close to each other in this one. They're all pretty well spread apart from each other. You're looking at like 18 inches or more between any of the objectives. 
in the first mission we talked uh, we talked about how the corner deployments can cut you off and only give you one objective. Mm-hmm. This is the opposite true where Dawn of War and Hammer and Anvil will only give you one, but a corner deployment will give you access to two. Yes. Josh, did you have anything you wanted to add on this one? I don't feel like Nexus Control is a really deep mission, but... The Nexus Control one is probably the most basic mission, even above the first one. The first one, there's still some intricacies to it, where this one is pretty much old school. you got the four corners of the map, hmm. go get them, go hold them, kill your opponent, see who comes out on top. Scenario 4 is actually the newest of the missions. It got updated after a lot of people did not like the old one, and I was 100% on board with that. This is the other mission where you get to deploy objectives in places you want. Yes. It is noticeably a high objective count mission. Yeah. Five objectives. One in the center of the table, and then each player will place two more objectives. One of them has to be in the enemy deployment zone. The other one is on your half of the table, I believe? No, it's anywhere. Oh, okay. Reese thought that was super cool. Yes. (laughs) Honestly, I love that aspect of this mission, because you try thinking more towards that end game. You do this right, you could actually earn yourself quite a few points. Yeah, no, I've actually moved my objective outside of my deployment zone a couple times, because my army is aggressive, it does want to go places, so it's like, well, I'm going to play it in a place where I'm going to send my forces. Yeah, the fact that this mission has four objectives that the individual players get to put down, I think makes it one of the most skill-dependent uh, missions, because there's there's so many choices to make there. Uh, speaking of which, the bonus point on this one is to hold the two objectives that you placed. Exactly. I think this is the easiest bonus point to get. It is. Yes. Hands down. Because, you know, you get to place those two objectives, so you get to put them pretty much wherever you want, as long as they're not within 12 of a, another objective, obviously. The only stipulating factor is the one of the two you place has to be placed in your opponent's deployment zone. Yes. yes. And I see a lot of people kind of like place that right at the edge of their zone, so it's as close as possible to them. Mm-hmm. It's an obvious choice. Uh, but there are ways to defend against that. Um, we're not going to talk about it a ton here, because like how you place objectives is really like a whole subject on its own. Yeah, it is. But just remember that you can use that 12-inch bubble around the objective that you get to place to screen where your opponent gets to place theirs. So if they want to put it, like, there's a huge ruin at the edge of your deployment zone that you're like, yeah, they're going to put it in there, just place your objective so that it is preventing them from placing their objective there, because you'll have a lot more control over it that way. And you also will place both of the objectives that are not in the enemy zone first, so you are alternating back and forth there. The next mission, Scenario 5, is Precious Cargo, which is the other four-objective one. This one has them in the center of the four table quarters, so you're essentially looking at the the same sort of setup as Mission 1, but without those two center objectives that we said you were fighting over, Mm -hmm. uh, which, in my mind, makes this often kind of a weird mission because you'll both probably be controlling the the two objectives on your side of the deployment, whatever that may have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the enemy has their two, so you're seeing a lot more ties on this one in my experience. The other thing to notice is that uh, you have a priority objective that you get to move up to six inches. Yes. Bonus point is holding the enemy's priority objective. So you have that one objective that you're trying to steal away from them. And 
pretty much all the time players take one of the two objectives in the deployment zone and move it deeper into their deployment zone, which is kind of exactly what you expect. This one isn't exceptionally hard to get the bonus point on, but it's not particularly easy, because of course your opponent's going to layer that thing up with all kinds of units and prevent you from getting to wits. Yes. Or put it inconveniently away and shoved enough of your stuff in your face you don't have time to go look at it. Yes. Josh, do you have any thoughts here? No, I was just, I've always tried to figure out a way to just try and make this, try and get more of an edge on this one, because this is, like you said, it's one of those ones that gets, gets ties a lot. Yeah. The key to this one is you make the choice for the priority objective and everything after deployment, but before the game begins. So one of the tricks I've found in this one is fainting a, an obvious priority objective that I will sometimes pick the one my opponent didn't think, because I've, I've placed a bunch of units, and they're like, aha, that's going to be his priority objective, and then all of a sudden it's not. But often it, it ends up being just kind of a slugging match. Final mission is Crucible of Champions, which is another five-objective mission. This one is, again, the diamond formation, but it's actually more spread out than the previous diamond, as the objectives near the long board edges are only six inches off. So you actually have objectives that are very far flung in this one. Yes. And then, of course, there is the fifth and final objective right in the center of the board. Indeed. In this one, the bonus point is a little bit odd. You need to hold three objectives with characters in order to get it. This is kind of stolen out of Age of Sigmar, which I think is a, a nice little nod to that. Do you guys often get this bonus point? By accident. If you don't have a character-heavy army, it's not relevant. Mm. This is a literal, if you did you build your list to be able to cover this potentially? Yes or no? Yeah. That's kind of how this bonus point works. I find a lot of armies are just set up in ways that make this bonus point very hard to get. But on the other hand, some of them just have like a million characters, and it's mm. not an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Josh, how about you? You play a lot of fairly character-heavy armies, I think. I do, and actually I love this mission because of it. This mission, if it's one of those situations, exactly you mentioned, where a lot of times most people just wind up getting it by accident. Mm -hmm. But if you go into writing your missions and you go into building your playstyle knowing that this is a mission you're going to be playing it, like you're going to an event, I know this is going to be one of the missions I play, and you build your list to be able to do it. Like when, uh, just as an example, when I was running the Demon Army there for a bit, uh, it had a couple demonic characters in there that their sole job was turn one. One was to rush up the middle. The other one was to rush out to the, whichever side was open. And it had the bodies to go with it to rush out with some plague bearers or pink horrors or whatever just to wall off their approach so they could just sit there. Mm -hmm. And got the, got the bonus point turn one, got the bonus point turn two. And... At that point, I'm making my opponent only fight me in that one corner of the table, because that's all you're doing, is you're just drawing a quadrant. Mm -hmm. and, just, and just sitting there and holding there. And if you play it right, you could almost wash any potential loss that you're going to have in that, well, maybe they killed more this turn, or maybe they held more this turn, but I've been getting the bonus point every turn, and that's what's keeping me in the advance. That's what's keeping me in the lead. And if you build your army to take advantage of this, a lot of people don't realize the character does not have to hold the objective to get this bonus point. Your characters just need to be in range of the objective, I believe. Yes. Yes. They, they do not actually need to be controlling it, although they typically will be. It's a nice caveat with that because if you have this massive, huge soiree melee going on around this objective and you just happen to have this character just stuck in the middle of it, not really going anywhere, not dying, but not doing anything... 
he's still getting you the bonus points. And that's one of the things I like about this mission. If you play it right and you play it smartly, you, you can still milk a good two to three extra points in the game out of it. And a lot of times, in ITC especially, that can be the game. That's actually a, a pretty good place to kind of capstone our whole discussion of these primary missions. You typically see in games that are not a blowout one way or the other a pretty close score between both players. Uh, I normally clock in somewhere around like 20-ish points off of the primary. Scores on the primary, kind of like the bottom end, you're getting like 12 points. And the top end is, you know, you, you're getting like 26 that's not really a big margin, so even just one or two bonus points can swing a game. Yeah. Yep. You know, you only need to be one point higher than your opponent to win. Yes, and that's exceptionally true in these ITC Champions missions, because the score from turn to turn tends to be such a tight gap between them. Like, most turns you are one point ahead of your opponent, two if you're doing really well. Yes. And that adds up, but turn by turn, it's not much of a difference. Exactly. Uh, and that's why it, there's the advantage of, I have this problem, I have to look ahead, and I have to be playing towards turns four, five, and six, because if you're not, these missions will trash you. Yep. Very true. Well, I think we are just about ready to move on and discuss secondary missions, but before that, let's go ahead and take our supply drop from the logistics departments. Hey everyone, are you looking for great competitive games of Warhammer 40k that you can watch while also donating to a charity for kids in need? If so, you should check out the Charity Hammer 40k Marathon stream, hosted by Best in Faction Podcast and Knights at the Game Table. It will be 48 continuous hours of two separate Twitch streams of some of the best players in the country playing games against each other, including Nick Nonavati, John Lennon, Jeff Robinson, Colin Sherman, myself, and Mitch Pelham, as well as many, many more. The stream will be free for everyone to view, but we do ask that viewers who can manage will donate something to the Child's Play charity, and for those who aren't able to watch the games live, as they'll be happening starting on January 4th and continuing all the way through the 5th, everything will be archived for those of you who want to come back later and watch for a nominal fee. Beyond just the games, we'll also have interviews, chats, discussions, and just good old-fashioned storytelling, as well as a, perhaps a few games of Beer Hammer for those looking for something a little bit less serious. So please... Give whatever you can, and check out and tell your friends about the Charity Hammer 40k Marathon stream, available on both Facebook and elsewhere. Hey there, Wargamers. Are you looking to do conversion of your dreams, but just can't find the right bits? Probably because they don't exist? Gaiman with a top hat? Magnus with a pimp cane? Mortarian playing chess? Well... Those dreams can become reality with VritaForge, a design and 3D printing studio that can make the bits you've always wanted to happen, happen. VritaForge can be found through Facebook, that's V-R-E-D-A-F-O-R-G-E, like Forge Worlds. 
contact her, and she can design custom bits, parts, in any number you desire, from one to a million. Verita Forge. Make all of your wargaming bits dreams come true. Welcome back. I hope you all were well and nourished by those delicious MREs. We're starting out on the secondary missions here, which I think are one of the most interesting features of the new ITC Champions mission. Uh, it's much more live with some of the Nova-style missions, because they had custom secondaries, as does Adepticon, and I think yeah. Renegade as well. I think so. that's where they took their, their inspiration from on all of these, and as time has gone on, they've gotten closer and closer to each other in terms of like what the secondaries actually are. It turns out the TOs talk to each other. Hmm. You mean in their secret TO conspiracy chat? I knew it. The Illuminati. I'm a member. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Damn 40k Illuminati ruining the game for everyone. <laughs> so, uh, the secondary missions are actually, in some ways, very simple. At the beginning of the game, before any deployment or other stuff is happening, you will pick three of the secondary missions. I think there's 11 of them now. But they're the same every game, mission to mission, no matter what IC, which of the ITC champion missions you're doing. And you will pick three of them based on, presumably, your army and the opponent's army. Yes. And I think this is perhaps the biggest stumbling block I see for people who are not familiar with the, the missions themselves. More than anything else, this is the thing I see them get wrong. Because, like, everyone knows how to help hold an objective and kill a unit. That's not real complicated. But picking your, your secondary missions and champions is kind of a really big deal. It turns out that, so, that there's two general subclasses. There are ones your opponent's army will let you have access to, and there are ones where you can just get yourself. Yes. I always kind of think of them as the kill-based and position-based ones. Yes. Because um, that's, that's generally how they kind of break up. Which um, leads us into the whole how why Eldar do so well in the ITC is because well, yeah. you can easily build an Eldar list to not give up the kill ones. You can build a list that will minimize these. In fact, you should. Uh, we'll, we're going to go over all of them in just a second here, but when you're writing a list, you should be looking at, do I qualify for these? Can my opponent pick these to score points against them? And for most lists, the answer is going to be yes. Most lists are going to give up full points on secondaries. It's actually fairly difficult to avoid it. Yes. Um, not impossible. As Shaylin mentioned, Eldar are really good at like skirting the edges of a bunch of these. But even lists that aren't going to minimize and kind of like, you know, you're going to score at least some points. But you should be looking at how easy those points are to give up, because that's mm -hmm. actually a really big deal as well. And some, some armies can't do it. Grey Knights, for example, will always give up March for Death. Our basic trip units are power level 7. There's no way for us to not do that. But knowing the restrictions of your army and what ITC points it's liable to give up in the secondaries are important things you can do because you can counterplay against that. Yeah, Josh if you're aware. had a, a, a really neat little trick that he mentioned before we started the show that I'd love to uh, have him give our viewers because I thought that was actually pretty clever. Oh, yeah. I've actually seen that done a couple times. I've actually only done it once myself, but uh, it's where, especially if you're running an army, like, example, Grey Knights, or even Blood Angels, or uh, Death Watch is another one that can do it, where your the majority of your army is made up of these 10-man 
power armor squads. I'll put three of them in the list, or I'll put four of them in the list, specifically to get my opponent want to realize that, well, there's two 10-man squads and two uh, dreadnoughts. Well, that's four mark for death points, really easy to get, so they're going to try and take that. And the moment they do, when you go to deploy your army, you combat squad the 10-man tactical squads, hide one of them in the back, and send the other one forward to actually do damage, do heavy lifting or whatever. And at that point, it makes your opponent work way more harder than they were, a, a lot harder than they were planning on to try and get that mark for death point. And at that point, you just took them from almost a guaranteed four points to maybe two. The one thing I've, I've studied a lot with the secondaries is if you can almost guarantee your opponent not the ability to get 12 points from the secondary, you already have an advantage in the game. If you can deny your opponent the ability to almost guarantee those 12 points, that's two to three points you're going to have above them. Yeah. The swing in points in these champions missions is fairly small so if you can deny your opponent two or four or six or even eight points that's a huge change if you're denying your opponent eight points on the secondaries that means that they can beat you almost every single turn of the game on both kill and hold and you still have a shot at winning yeah and contra wise if you do this to yourself, and you pick secondaries that you don't get, if you only score like one or two points on some of your secondaries, you are in serious trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, some of these you have to look at like, oh, you know, how can I minimize the points I give up to my opponent? But you can also do that during play, not just at the list building step. And what seems like a really good choice may kind of be a trap. Yes. The other thing we should point out about these objectives is that many of them are exclusive to each other. Um, yes. Some of them are marked with an asterisk. The entry, we'll go about and talk about these individually as we're talking about the individual specifics in just a second here. But when you kill a unit or deal wounds to a unit or otherwise score something and get points, secondary objectives marked with an asterisk cannot be counted for that same kill. So if you kill your opponent's warlord and you had taken Kingslayer, you can get that Kingslayer point, but you won't get any headhunter point or anything else. Still counts just fine towards the primary, though. Yes, and it does count for some ones, like Old School, for example, does double dip. Right. Uh, we'll go over the, the individuals well, right now, actually. It mm -hmm. seems like a pretty good place to start. The, the first one is Headhunter. Headhunter is very simple. You score one point for each enemy character you have killed. Uh, all of these secondaries max out at four points each for a maximum total of 12 points. Yes. So a, a thing to note is if you've gotten four points off Headhunter, you don't necessarily have to go after your opponent's characters, mm -hmm. with the caveat of those characters are probably boosting their army in some way, so they or might be easy kills depending on what's going on. Right. I find Headhunter is actually one of, not necessarily the easiest, but one of the most common selections, because... You need HQs to use detachments, so everyone has characters. <laughs> characters are where a lot of your army force multiplication comes from in this edition, so mm -hmm. you just see them. Along the same vein is Kingslayer. Uh, oh, we should point out that Headhunter is an exclusive one. Yeah, uh, as I is think. Kingslayer. Yes, indeed. Uh, Kingslayer is kind of a, a weird, different version of Headhunter. I always feel a little strange about it. But uh, Kingslayer is for every two wounds you deal to one particular character you pick at the beginning of the game, you gain one bonus point. 
if you actually kill that character and they are your opponent's warlord, then you get an additional point. There is a caveat where if it's a vehicle or monster keyword, yes, it's every four wounds. Yes, four wounds, not two. You got to double it up on the big guys, um, yes. which sometimes is fine, but sometimes is kind of weird because you get like the Incarn, which only has nine wounds, and on the flip side, you have things like knights, where like you can get full points without even killing them. Also, regenerated wounds still count. Still count. It's damage dealt over the course of the game. Yes. Do you guys take Kingslayer very often? Actually, a lot. Yeah, that, that's my experience as well, is there are so many characters. So, uh, obviously, that is what you were looking for in all these secondaries, is can I get full points out of it, and how easily? Yes. Uh, it doesn't have to be your opponent's warlord. Some characters with high wound counts will give up full points on this, or they can regenerate wounds. You know, I look, do they have Terminator characters? And I'll just ask them, to your warlord. If they are, then most of the time, I'll very likely choose Kingslayer on them, because it's going to be a character I'm probably going to want to try and kill, and it's four points sitting on that character dying. Yes. Yeah. Getting rid of your opponent's warlord is often a priority anyways. Marked for Death is the next one on our list. This is another newer one for those who uh, haven't been playing ITC as long. Uh, you pick four different units in your opponent's army that have a power level of seven or higher, and each one of those you kill is worth a point. You've already heard me complain about this. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is another exclusive one. And this one is very army dependent. Some mm -hmm. armies have lots of things that qualify for Mark to Death, the point where it's almost like comically easy to pick, and some really don't have very many. Yes. And that's something you just consider when you're building your list. And this is something I often ask my opponent because it's, people forget to write down the power level of their stuff in yeah. their lists. So it's a courtesy to write it down. Please don't be the individual who has to look up the power level of everything in their army because they didn't write it down. <laughs> I think this is actually a very smart choice by Reese. Power level 7 is actually a great breakpoint for this because it, it basically means expensive characters, large units in individual single powerful units, things like heavy tanks and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, a lot of characters don't qualify for it, because PL6 is typically where you see your standard, like, captains and whatnot. Yes. Um, but expensive guys like Guillemin or Shield Captain or that sort of thing do qualify. Exactly. Um, because this is one of the kill-based ones, it tends to be pretty easy to get, because these power level 7 and higher targets tend to be not easy to get rid of, but easy to target, um, as it's, yeah. you know, you're not going to be hiding that land raider or the hemlock wraith fighter from the enemies shooting very easily. This is one that your opponent might try and sneak away into a corner somewhere, but often won't be able to. Yeah, that it's going to be something big and important in your army. You yeah. brought it because it was big and important. Yep. Yep. The only other thing I'd throw in on this is that it's often easy to pick a suicidal unit for this. If your opponent has a smash captain type guy, something that is going to fly up right in your face, destroy something important, and then die, great choice for, for Mark for Death. Yes. Next one is Big Game Hunter. Yep. Uh, which is very, very similar to Mark from Death. One point each for every vehicle or monster you kill that has... Seven or more wounds, I believe it is now? It is seven or more wounds, and that is specifically so that Carnifexes can be thrown under the bus. <laughs> and the Talos as well. Yeah. Uh, but Mark for Death is pretty basic. It's just, you know, four big things. It is uh, an exclusive. 
Yes. Some armies will qualify for both Mark for Death and Big Game Hunter. You don't usually see that many big vehicles or monsters, but every once in a while it happens. And um, then you'll have an army like mine that doesn't give up any Big Game Hunter points. That is actually very common. Um, we're sort of getting into the ones that are much more army-dependent. Especially the next one, which is an exclusive. Yes. Titan Slayer. <laughs> every eight wounds you deal to a model with the Titanic keyword. So, uh, as we mentioned earlier, you need to choose when you start dealing these wounds, whether you're going to count it towards Titan Slayer or one of the other exclusive ones. But if your opponent brought a Knight Detachment, there's a pretty good chance you can get some points out of these Titan Slayers. Also, as a fun fact, you don't even have to do all the damage on one model. It could be across multiple. Yes. Yes, it is every eight wounds total you deal to them. Josh, do you have any you know, any commentary on this one? We see a fair number of knights out where we are. Is that the case on your side of things as well? Oh yeah, it's still there. Okay. It's a knight made of folks. So yeah, if your opponent brought anything but a super heavy auxiliary detachment, Titan Slayers is going to get you maximum points pretty easily. Because you only have to deal 32 wounds total to their Titanic models. You take down a knight and then you bunk up another one and you're done. Yep. Getting into some non-exclusive ones, the Reaper. Yes, uh, this one is pretty cool. It's for every 20 models destroyed. This can be any model. Like, you kill your opponent's character, that technically counts towards it. I've killed a knight to get a point on a Reaper before. <laughs> uh, it, it happens every once in a while. 80 models is full Reaper points. A lot of lists don't have that many models. I've also run lists that have like 85 models. You can take Reaper in that situation, but you probably shouldn't, because if you've tabled your opponent, you're getting full points. Exactly. I've kind of found that the 100... 10 is where I really like to see my opponent's model count for Reaper to be viable. Mm -hmm. It can also vary on what those models are. When you see that list with, like, units of 20 Gene Stealers, you're going to need to kill those or you're going to lose the game. Yeah. That is the thing about secondaries, is sometimes it's acceptable to take a secondary that's only get you three points if it's completely in line with your battle plan, because at that point it's like, I'm not going out of my way to get the secondary. It means you can put more effort into scoring points elsewhere, and by the same token, uh, I'm sure Josh has seen this before, it's like, if you have like a couple units of big like plague bearers or stuff like that, they're just going to spend the whole game like hiding on your side of the board and don't have any real intention of going into the enemy's face... Those models may as not well not count for Reaper, because you're not going to wipe out 60 Plague Bearers with full buffs sitting in the backfield. That's not happening. No. Mm-hmm. And there are some areas it's like, oh, you brought a big block of cultists. I see what you did there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Reaper is another one that they will either give up or not in most cases. If you can't tell just sort of like looking over at their army like, oh yeah, you give up Reaper then you probably shouldn't take Reaper. That's kind of a pretty good guideline. Yeah. The same is true with many of these objectives. It's like, can I get this? If that's a legitimate question you're asking yourself, probably no. Yes. <laughs> so now we're actually getting into some of the more unusual ones, because pretty much all the ones so far have just been kill things. Uh, but there are a bunch of others that you can get as well. Uh, recon is one that I see as a very common objective. You need one unit that is at least partially in all four of the different table quarters, and no unit can count towards two of the quarters, obviously. Fun fact, if you are trying to slam in midfield, all you need is a toe in the quarter with each unit. Mm-hmm. That little spot in the center of the board where all four table quarters meet 
is a very good place to be if you're trying to score recon points. This is also where Shaylin mentioned earlier the units with infiltrate or similar abilities, or like Josh had mentioned, deep strike. Because uh, both of you have armies that can really get into some weird places on the table. And fast. So Recon is definitely, you don't always get it the first turn. Most it's, armies don't. It's achievable first turn. It is uh, achievable first turn. We should point out you score this one at the end of your player turn. Yes, which is another thing to keep in mind. But the, the thing about Recon is from the opponent's perspective, if your opponent has taken Recon, mm -hmm. shooting them off Recon is important. If they have not committed enough things to stay in recon. Yes, although because it is scored at the end of player turn, you know, you don't really get to respond to it, but you can preempt them by killing the units that they currently have in a table quarter and force them to move something else. Exactly. Redundancy is important if you take recon. Very much so. You can't have it banking on one or two units. Yeah. Josh, I'm, I'm a little curious. Do you often see people taking recon and not getting full points on it? Or is that is that not the case for you? I actually see it a lot more now than, I, than you did previously. And I think a lot of that goes back to the lack of early board control, you know, with the lack of the deep strike turn one, lack of the infiltrating strats. A lot of people still think that they can push out and take it, uh -huh. and in the ITC missions especially, controlling the center of the table is very strong. This is another one of those secondaries where if you're running an army that is going to you know, push in and control the center of the table, it's really easy to get recon. And so again, it goes back to being able to control the center of the table, allows you to control the flow of that game and allows you to be able to keep that recon up, where if you're playing against someone that's trying to get all sneaky, like, I'm going to get this unit way back here and this unit way back here, you have a tendency to get strung out that way really easy and wind up losing points. Yes. Yeah, and that's actually something I have found myself doing and I often see opponents do. You just need to be a fraction of an inch into a table quarter to score that table quarter. You don't need to be hiding way in the back corner of the board, although sometimes it's useful, too. I've done baiting traps with it where it's like, well, I've got this scout unit that is holding my recon really obviously, but I've got this Battle Sisters unit that's like actually half an inch into that corner. You don't realize, so people go after the scout units all out in the corner there and they can have it. Right. Uh, and actually, speaking of uh, kind of bait and traps, one thing to be really careful of don't take recon against highly aggressive armies if you aren't also similarly aggressive. I where they're like, well, I'll just put these, you know, scout units or whatever up into midfield, and, you know, they'll get me recon, and then they're getting charged on turn one and their units all go away. It's like, well, you're not getting recon anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so you got to be really careful with recon. It's dependent on your army, but it's also dependent on your opponent's army because they are also trying to control the fields. It turns out. Actually, and the flip side of recon is behind enemy lines, which... I consider one of the weirdest objectives on this list. I'm going to call it second weirdest, uh, <laughs> because it is scored at the beginning of the player turn. It is the only objective which is scored at the beginning of the player turn. At which I've caught opponents on so many times. Yes. Uh, behind enemy lines is one point for every turn that you have a unit in the enemy's deployment zone. Holy. Holy within the enemy's deployment zone at the beginning of your turn. Yes, and uh, the holy is a huge thing because if yep. they don't get that one model in from that five-man squad, it's not theirs. Yes, uh, and of course, because it is the beginning of the player turn, your opponent will have their entire turn to do whatever they need to do to get you out of there, which can make this one sometimes kind of difficult to get. Mm -hmm. I don't take it often, but I have taken it. 
Uh, I don't really see Shaylin taking it very often. I don't, because my forward-leaning units are very flimson and don't usually last long enough for this to be relevant. Yeah. And even if you have an aggressive army, it's not a good idea to take this sometimes, because it's like, well, my aggressive unit's going to die for sure. It's, it's too easy to deny to your, for your opponent to deny you it a lot of the time. Josh, is that your experience as well? Yeah, it's, I, I'll be honest. Since they changed behind enemy lines to what it is now, I have not seen it taken or taken it in a tournament setting. Oh, really? Yeah. That's that's actually interesting. I guess maybe this, this says more to my armies than anything. I've actually taken it a decent number of times. Um, there are certain units that are very good at it. Nurglings are one of them. Flyers. Yes, that's the next one I was going to mention. Uh, I play Eldar Flyers reasonably often. You're not going to kill two or three Hemlock Ray fighters in a turn. That just, that ain't happening. But it is kind of risky, because if you think about it, in order to get full points out of either of the positional ones, there are six turns in the game, you need to score them four turns of the game. Mm-hmm. And Recon is not too hard, because you can get on the first turn if you if you just put a little bit of effort into it, but you can never get behind enemy lines on the first turn of the game. There's no way to do it. Mm-hmm. So that means there are only five turns of the game remaining to score on four of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a rough prospect. That is asking a lot, because that means that even though in those closing turns of the game, when most of your army has probably been destroyed, you still need to have a unit in the opponent's zone. It's not impossible, but it is, I think, inarguably the more difficult of the two positional secondaries. It is definitely so, and I have taken it a few occasions, but I've gotten burned on it enough times to tell you I don't favor it. I generally use it as a last resort when I have an army that is pretty good at scoring, getting into the enemy zone and whatnot, and the enemy has an army that is very hard to score against. Uh, if they don't give up very many of the other killing secondaries, then maybe you take behind enemy lines. Yeah, I've done it against Dark Elder a couple times. Yes. The one, that the positional one that I don't like, that I think is always a mistake, and I have never seen work out well for anyone, is ground control. Uh, it's bad. Worst secondary in the game. The worst secondary there is. I'll take behind enemy lines before I take ground control. Absolutely. <laughs> behind enemy lines, do you think you have an argument for? Ground control, I have trouble imagining a scenario in which it's ever good. Ground control is one point at the end of the game for each objective that you control. Yes. Also, fun fact, so one of the missions only has three objectives, so you can't physically max it out. Yeah. Uh, and even in the other missions, like, controlling four objectives at the end of the game, you've, you should, you've won there, right? Like, not only do you have enough object units to control four objectives, but your opponent is not contesting any of them, and you played out a full six turns, presumably while holding many of those objectives on other turns as well. Yeah. It's just that so many things need to align just perfectly for it to ever happen. I have only seen a handful of opponents take it against me, and I think it was a mistake every time. That was basically my feeling as well. As my opponents take that, they're like, used to Eternal War, it's familiar. Yeah. These are ITC novices. Anyone with any ITC experience will never take that. There apparently are rationales for it. I've just never seen one that I favor very much. Yeah, 
No, the, the, the only time I've seen it work out was a Nurgle list, which was built to basically just stay around all game. Right. And they lunged forward slowly, 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 and yeah. sat on all the objectives at the end of the game. With and I just, I always wonder in those situations, it's just, couldn't you have gotten full points off of behind enemy lines and recon already? Did you really need to take all three of those? <laughs> yeah. You didn't, you didn't get any other objectives you could take? <laughs> that's, yeah. That's just very strange to me. Exactly. We have uh, just a couple more left here. Yeah. Butcher's Bill is the last of the kind of standard style one. You gain one point on each of your player turns if you have killed at least two enemy units. It does not double up if you kill, like, four or six or eight. Yes. It's just kill two. Did you kill two or more? If so, get a point. Superficially, this is a little bit like Recon and Enemy Lines, where it's like you're scoring cumulatively over the course of the game, but I find you take it against with and against very different kinds of armies. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a good way to, to punish the sort of MSU armies that are spamming tons and tons of units out there on the field. Mm -hmm. um, it's fairly easy to do against most armies. There yes. certainly are armies that don't have enough units that you can easily kill two per turn, but this is another one of my easy go-to picks, I find. Yeah. And there are some armies that are deceptive, such as an Eldar Ranger spam army that's yeah. a Lytok. Good luck. A, a Lytok armies, even though they have a lot of units, can sometimes be very hard to kill very many of those units a turn. And you should be wary of that. Um, and by the same token, like a uh, like one of you know Josh's demon army that's kind of like, well, I've got like 29 units in it, but like... 18 of them are characters, and five of the remaining ones are giant blocks of infantry that you're not going to chew through in one turn. Yeah. But Butcher's Bill is not a bad kind of, like, I don't know what else to do choice, but you can get burned on it. It can definitely be a wrong answer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I try not to use it as a fallback. Uh, Josh, do you find yourself taking it very often, or...? Um, I'd probably have to give myself about a 50% ratio on it, especially when I run aggressive armies. If I'm running very aggressive armies, I, send, I seem to take it, I seem to favor it much more. Yeah. Another thing to be careful with Butcher's Bill, as Shaylin already said, you know, killing more and more units in a turn doesn't get you anything special. You do sometimes have to be careful about overkilling if you take yes. Butcher's Bill. Kill, kill. Like, yes. If you kill <laughs> eight of their units and, like, wipe out, like, a towel list, and it's like, I killed all their drone units turn one. It's like, yeah, but now what are you going to kill? Mm -hmm. uh, the three Riptides? You're not going to kill two Riptides in a turn. <laughs> not unless something has gone disastrously wrong. It can often be worth it with Butcher's Bill to kind of leave some weakened units to finish off on later turns of the game. I have specifically had a unit split fire intending to damage units mm -hmm. so that I have, like, a single blank is easy. Yes. And mind you, this is at the end of player turn, during a player turn. I've actually done it quite a few times, more times than I thought I would have, where I've actually capped out Butchersville by the end of round two. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, because uh, uh, you can kill things on opponent's turns. So. Yeah, so if you kill two on your turn, two on the opponent's turn, that's two points. Yeah. Okay, that's cute. I have <laughs> never actually seen that happen before. Uh, I've, I've done it a handful of times, actually. That's fair. You two play more melee armies than I do. Mm -hmm. Very true. I uh, forget about the player's turn thing a lot, too, so... There's also that. So the final one on our list, uh, kind of appropriately, is Old School. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Old School. You have four different things. You earn one point each for doing each of those four things. You obviously can't double up. So you have First Strike, kill unit on the first turn of the game. 
last strike, kill a unit on the last turn of the game. Uh, important note on this one, it is whatever turn of the game actually ends on, so if you go to time and have to finish on turn, like, four or whatever, it's turn four, not turn six. All the turn tabling happens. Yes. You can still actually get your last strike point if you kill something and then your opponent tables you. Yes. Then you have Linebreaker, which is have a unit within the... Within your opponent's deployment oh, zone. Is, yes, at, at least one model must be wholly within the enemy's deployment zone. So you can have part of a unit in there because it's model. But it has to be the, an entire model, even if that model is only part of a unit. <laughs> uh, and then the final point is Slay the Warlord. Have the enemy warlord be dead at the end of the game. Yep. A notable interest thing here is Custodes have that uh, stratagem where they can like flip where their warlord is yes. when he dies. That is an important thing to remember about Custodes. Right. Well, Custodes say. and Alpha Legion and some others, there's some ways to uh, pass the warlord thing around a little bit with some different armies. Do you guys take old school very often? It, it's an okay default choice. I'm used to doing it mm -hmm. from previous ITC mission types and sure. structures. If I'm saying they're drawing a blank, I usually just default to old school. I'll, I'll always get first and last strike, and I'm very likely to get line breaker because of how my army works. So it's like I'll get three points out of it pretty likely, two for sure, three really likely. Against certain opponents, it's actually a bad choice because it's like I don't want to be in their line all the time. Sure. So if that's not the case, old school is not on the table. Josh, how about you? To actually tend to shy away from old school strictly because I've seen that it has a tendency to become a crutch. Even if it's not beneficial for them, it just seems to be what they default to. And because of that, I have a tendency to shy away from it because I always ask myself, am I taking this because it's actually what I need and it's useful, or am I taking this because it's what I'm comfortable with? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've I've actually seen some of the, the high-level players, uh, I think Nick Nanavati was one of them, recommend against old school in many matchups. Um, because, like you say, it's kind of a crutch. Um, I kind of go, I, I'm a little ambivalent on it, because on the one hand, I've seen a lot of people take old school and only get, like, two points out of it, and that just doesn't cut the mustard. Um, yeah. Old school is very easy to get a point or two off of. Uh, like Shaylin said, like, you, you, you'll either kill on the first or last turn, and hopefully both. Um... But then, you know, killing the enemy warlord is not a guarantee. But on the other hand, I against armies that have difficult picks otherwise, but that I am confident I can do a lot of damage to, I often find it's not a problem for me, uh, because none of the stipulations in it are particularly difficult. So I find that old school can be a solid choice, just because there's no real way for your enemy to deny it, but at the same time, if it doesn't align with what your army is doing, it can often be very punishing. Uh, yes, and that's that's the one of the themes of picking a good secondary is, is it in line with my general strategy? Yes. Is it in line with things my army wants to do? Is it in line with things my opponent wants to do? Yeah, Those are three questions you have to ask yourself when you're picking secondaries, every time. And it's something we've touched on a number of times already, and I think is very important. How do I have to go out of my way to achieve this secondary, or is it something that my army will naturally do anyways as part of its central strategy? My opponent's playing Tyranids, and he's got his big blocks of Gene Stealers. They have to die. 
Yep. There is, I will lose that game if I don't kill those units. Mm-hmm. Or if he likes to be cagey with them and have them in the backfield and not relevant, that is also acceptable. I will sacrifice points for that. Right. Uh, you think about that sort of the, the reverse way around there. If your opponent hides his, you know, 60 or 80 gene stealers in the back of the army and never does anything with them, that's like 600 free points that they're not playing with. You're okay with that, because a Tyranid army without gene stealers is not really going anywhere. What do you feel is the minimum number of points you'll accept out of a secondary? Three. Josh? Same, three. If it's less than three, I won't even consider it. Okay. I think that is kind of the threshold. I really dislike going for less than four. I I maybe play a little risky in that I'm willing to gamble on a less likely four-point than a guaranteed three. But maybe that speaks to the kind of armies I play more than anything. Yeah. For me, a three I will always die for if it's perfectly in line with my battle plan. Hmm. Because if it's trivially easy for me to do, I'm just going to do it. If there's any room for my opponent to make me be going out of my way to do something, I will favor a three guaranteed points, then get myself burned and only walk away with two out of four. Yep. It's fair. So, that covers the primary and secondary missions. You can get up to 30 off the primary and 12 off the secondary. You should, as we've already discussed, be getting no less than 9, and hopefully 12 out of your secondaries. The primary, my experience has been a winning game, you're probably getting 20 to 24, a losing game, you're probably getting 12 to 16. Yes. uh, Which will vary a bit depending on the kind of armies you play and whatnot, but those are still pretty good rough ballparks, I think. So, ITC typically has final scores in the low 20s to low 30s, in my experience. Yes. Very rarely do you go into the high 30s. Technically possible to get into the low 40s, but I've heard about it, and I'm still not sure how it's realistically possible. Usually when you see a 42 score, it is because someone tabled somebody else, and they miscalculated it. Yes. Uh, We didn't actually discuss this, but I think it is worth uh, noting. If you table a player in ITC, you score four points for each remaining turn of the game that has been unplayed, and I believe it maxes out your secondaries as well. It's you get all full remaining secondary points that you could achieve at that point. So example, if I started the game with the ability to get maximum recon points as an example, right? If the moment I table my opponent, I only have three units left on the table, but I've only gotten two points on my recon, I can't actually get those two remaining recon points because it is not achievable at the moment you table your opponent. You don't just automatically max your secondaries. Yes. Additionally, your opponent still gets to keep their existing score, and if that is sufficiently higher than yours, they can still win the game having been tabled. It is possible in ITC to win a game after having been tabled. It's very rare, but it is possible. It's easier to get a 42. <laughs> yeah, it, they're they're pretty equivalent, honestly speaking. On that, the comments you guys were talking about on the max points thing, I've actually had a few conversations with uh, both Reese and Frankie on that, and at a lot of their events specifically, if players turn in a score that is above 37 or 38 points, they'll have a, one of the main judges talk to the two players and verify that it was an actual like 38 or 39 point win or a 40 point win versus someone miscalculating because they got tabled and they just gave them full points or whatever. 
the other thing to to note is ITC players are the ones officially responsible for entering in their scores. Yeah, uh, if if you enter in your score incorrectly, that's what it is. Sorry. Some TOs are more lenient on that. Some players may be willing to sort of like fix the score afterwards, but they have no obligation to do so. Exactly. I've had scores miscalculated. My opponent and I go up to the TO together and say we've had this problem and get it fixed. Yeah. That is how that is done. They will demand your opponent if your opponent is not present when you point out the score mishap. Sort of broadly speaking, one of the things that I think is uh, a final takeaway from ITC missions is that tabling is a lot less valuable than it is in some other formats. Uh, Eternal War and... I. Think Renegade and Nova as well award maximum points for uh, a tabling. ITC does not, uh, and that's also distinct from the ETC format, which similarly gives you max points. So, ITC playing for the table is not nearly as valuable as it is in some other formats, which kind of affects the sort of armies you tend to see. But unless either you guys have anything else you think needs to be uh, covered immediately, that pretty much wraps up our uh, discussion of the ITC champion missions. Do you have any final thoughts you want to add? As an exercise, if you are not familiar with the secondaries, write them all down into little cards for yourself. Flashcards, amen. For either flashcarding yourself or just having as a reference at a tournament, it's yes. a good exercise. It'll make you read them and understand them a little better because you're interacting with them in a different way. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to playtesting practice is talk about in a soft game, hey, was these good secondary choices? And if you're if you're looking at lists, uh, for example, some tournaments will release lists before a tournament, or if you see a list that someone has posted off as like, hey, this is what I'm bringing to the tournament, and you're not familiar with ITC missions and picking the secondaries and whatnot, uh, just go through, look at that list and look at the missions and say, what would I pick against this player? Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously you don't know the terrain and the table and all that sort of thing, but you can look at that and say, like how would I pick these and how likely am I to get them and whatnot? Because that can be a good exercise for sort of familiarizing with themselves as well. In the mission packets, you're supposed to write down uh, that thing, keep that packet, so -hmm. you can see what you did, how it affected your score, because they've got the whole score sheet right there, conveniently, where it's like, this is where I made some mistakes in the score round, so you can go back and learn. Yep. Uh, That's actually a good practice for tournaments in general. Yeah. Josh, do you have anything you want to finish this off with here? I think we pretty well uh, beat this one solid. All right. Well, Knocked it out of the we'll... park with a halberd. Yes. <laughs> I think we'll call this an episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you very much for uh, coming and visiting our brand fancy new website, which Shaylin has prepared for us. Uh, she's even put up an article there if you'd like to read through that. If you're interested in seeing those diagrams that she talked about earlier, that will also be on the site, and that'll all be linked through from our page. I'd also like to put out a thank to Dank Muse, who was the one who prepared all the music for our episode, both the intermission and the opening. And thank you to our sponsors for this week. We'll catch you all next week when we will be talking about a subject I think that is very near and dear to the hearts of all competitive players out there, blocking and board from me in the center, Shaylin over on the left. See ya. And Josh to the right. Next time.
Lady of Titan recorded this episode during his speech of Lord Gilliman's. It was later edited by her hand after the fiasco with stage 